Before us today is this glorious prayer that we've been meditating on and pondering on together in the last four weeks. We come to our final week in this study of Psalm 139, having reflected upon the four petitions in verses 23 and 24 of this incredible text. We come to that final line today where we're really giving our hearts over to this petition, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we're asking the Lord to do. We believe David is calling us unto that. We believe the Lord is calling us unto that. And so as we approach this text this morning, focus in upon that particular petition and ask the Lord to begin to lead us in the service in a special way. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 23 and extending to verse 24. Search me, O God, And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having read this word now in the presence of your people and knowing that your spirit is present in the reading of your word and that you send your word into the life of your people to accomplish whatever it is that you send it to accomplish, that it won't return to you void. We ask for whatever your intentions, whatever your will demands from this passage and from this message today to be accomplished in the life and the heart of your people. Even our best attempts at resisting your word, we pray would be overwhelmed by the work of the Spirit today. Even in our most um, affectioned distractions that tend to come into our minds in the moment of worship, we pray that they would have no loveliness to us as we approach this word. And we pray that only Christ and what it is that he wants to communicate to us in this word would be our heart's cry and would actually be the fruit of this time. So Lord, hear this petition. We believe it is a petition that's consistent with your desires. Come now and answer it according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I was reading actually a fairly new book in the world of sociology, and I ran across a reference that triggered a memory of an, of an old book. It's a book that maybe some of you will, will recognize the title of. The name of the book is Future Shock. It was written in 1970 by Alvin Toffler, fairly well-known uh, sociology book um, speaking about the effects of the psychological pressure that many of us experience in the 20th and now 21st century, different from other eras in history. A future shock is what he's describing. He's the one who uh, termed, he coined the term, overchoice. I don't know if you're familiar with that terminology or not, but overchoice is the, the term that means we've got too many options 
in the modern world. And because of our too many options, we find ourselves constantly bombarded with too many choices. Overchoice is part of the struggle of the modern era. He said, with these too many options, what happens to us as people is we become cognitively distressed by those choices. And in fact, because we see so many good potential choices, we're not sure which choice we should make between the many good choices that are before us. And we become fearful, fearful of making the wrong choice. We weigh the risk and the benefits of taking this path over that path and, and this path over that path. And, and then we consider and extrapolate what would be the outcome if we went down that, that path. And then we monitor what might be the best decision. But at the end of that work, what often happens is we still don't know. And we've got all of these good options before us. And now we're overwhelmed, having put a lot of energy into it. And we're paralyzed. We don't know what to do. Sound familiar? Anybody in this room? And then what happens is we get to a place where we actually have to make a decision, right? You have that deadline or you have that someone's got to give moment. And now that you've got to make a decision, you make a decision. And as soon as you make the decision, you regret the decision that you made. And, and you begin to wonder if we'd make a different decision, what would have unfolded? How it probably would have been, been better? And we immediately doubt the decision that we've made. All of you know this experience because you've all... Well, you've all eaten at the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> and you know when they lay that 21-page volume down on the table called a menu, and you look through the 250 menu items that are there, and you were just going to have a nice and relaxing evening with your significant other, and now you're stressed out about choosing the right thing to eat, and you're not sure if it's the sirloin or it's the chicken fried steak, or you're going to be nice and it's going to be a salad with some grilled salmon or something like that. And 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 you 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 know they come around and you go, no, nope, we're not quite ready. We'll just get the drinks and we'll get the bread. You know, get the bread and you start eating on the bread. And you look through the tome and you back and forth, and then you choose. And and then you go, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it was the right choice. Maybe I should just go with what I've known. No, I'll go with something new. And then the food arrives, and you look at everybody else's, and you go, I didn't make the right decision. This is not. <laughs> this is not the right decision. I, I should have chose. I should have chose something else. This is why it's a lot less stressful to go to Five Guys than it is to go to. <laughs> because your decision's already made. Like you show up at the restaurant, and, and like you're having a burger, and. You got a few decisions, one or two patties, ketchup or mustard, but I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Um, that cognitive uh, stress that, that is spoken of there, we laugh about it, it's funny, and, and we can see it, especially with, with the Cheesecake Factory. The fact of the matter is, so many of our decisions in life are like that. And, and they're usually not just decisions about dinner, which typically does not have lasting repercussions. There are decisions about uh, jobs, which job to take, or um, what person to draw close to and build a relationship with, or um, where, to, where to move, or what decision to make for the education of your children, or um, how to raise your children. You know, are you... Are you, are you too hard on them, or you not hard enough on them, or you showing them too much grace, or you're not, who knows? And whatever you do, you'll never feel like you did it right. And and 
you know, there's all these problems in your work and you don't know if you should speak about them or just wait and see what happens and maybe an opportunity will arise and you've got all these things you could spend your money on and they're good things, they're not bad, but you're not sure if what's the right thing and, and the right measure of the thing that you should spend your money on. These are the questions that actually make up all of our lives. You know, the way you spend your days is the way you spend your life. And the decisions of how you engage those decisions each day is how you spend the making of the decisions that become your life. Now, as I, as I look over it, and as I you know, talk to many of you, and I see tendencies in my own life, there's, there's often a, a tendency to stress for some of us about all of our decisions. Um, I'm going to call you that group that stresses about all of your decisions. I'm going to call you the perfectionists when it comes to decision-making. You know, you were, the, you were the firstborn. You were the type A, right? In high school, you had to get all your classes just so, so you could get into the right school. And when you got to the right school, you get the right degree, so you could marry the right person and get the right job and buy the right house. And, you know, at 15, you were 35, looking at what was down the line. You were planning, and you, every, one misstep, you're just stressed out. And you're thinking like, oh, I didn't get into that class. My life is over, right? There's no way that anything could change. The perfectionists. Some of us are like that in this room. Others of us are saying, you're stressing me out thinking about that right now. I'm, I'm the pacifist in this room. I just, I'm easy going. I, I just kind of let life come and I react to it. I'm, I'm just sort of laid back. Que sera, say raw, laissez faire. These are the words that sort of um, capsulize how I make decisions. They, really what happens is I just move through life and decisions happen. And I don't really even give much concentration to it. Uh, rather than choosing a path for life, life kind of chooses a path for, for me. Now, as I describe those two groups, I hope that in your mind you're saying, which am I? Where, where do I tip? Um, what's my tendency in those decisions? Do you find yourself stressing over every direction and try as best you can to control all the outcomes of every decision? Because you've got to clear picture of where you want to be or are you very hands-off and you just Mr. Mrs. Flexi every day is a new day it's a discovery an adventure who knows what's going to happen you're just going to see what takes place now here's what I'd like to, to note as we move towards this text neither of those positions really capture a biblical pattern and wisdom for decision making neither of them do well if you think about it the perfectionist, the one who is taking life by the tail and mapping out the end of the beginning of what it's going to look like, is, is often not reflecting or considering in their plans the fact that God is sovereign over everything that's going to take place and your best laid plans will change. How many people's lives and hearers has turned out exactly like you planned? Not a one of us. And it's because it's not actually your life. It's his life. And this rattles the perfectionist. He's not thinking in terms of the divine openness of the work of God in his or her life. It's just cl closed on the earthly variables and trying to move the chess pieces on the board of life. You're never going to outmaneuver the sovereignty of God. You're never going to outmaneuver it. It needs to be built into your plans. 
But now the passive among us, don't we fail very often to actually embrace the responsibility that God has given to us to make wise choices in life? God has told us, Matthew 6.33 for instance, he's told us to seek first his kingdom. Seek first these priorities. Seek first these things. And all these other things are going to be added unto you. He doesn't say, sit back and wait for the kingdom. He says, be active. Uh, Seek. Uh, Set your your mind to it. And recognize that, that this kingdom and this righteousness is the end for which God has made you. Tilt your direction and your plans toward it. Toward that particular end. Now, what's... I think helpful about what we see David do here is he brings together the strengths of the perfectionistic and uh, the, the pacifistic and he mitigates against the weaknesses because he's stayed on the Lord. As he prays in this passage, Lord, lead me to the everlasting way. He is starting not with plans, And he's not starting with relaxation to just wait to see what happens. He's starting with prayer. That's where he's starting. See, there's not the perfectionist and just the pacifist. There's the prayerful. And this is where David starts in this passage. We need to just pull back even before we jump into the Lord lead me and just recognize where's this coming from? It's coming from a psalm. What's a psalm? It's a prayer. It's a song to the Lord. He has come to the Lord. To seek the Lord for direction, for wisdom, and for guidance. Now let me tell you what that tells us implicitly. It tells us that he is trusting in the sovereignty of God. And he is acknowledging God's power and authority over his life. The posture of prayer is a posture of surrender. It's a posture of submission. Lord, lead me in the everlasting life. He's not just plotting his course and asking the Lord to bless his plans. He's coming to the Lord. And he's saying, Lord, lead my life. You be my plan. You are my plan. You're the leadership that I need. He's he's also um, not just surrendering himself in such a way as to be passive. He's moving towards the Lord. He's taking responsibility for the direction that he needs to go. He is saying, I have a responsibility to seek the Lord's face and his leading I can't control the outcomes. I want to submit myself to him. But I want my will so aligned with his that I'm asking him to be the leader of my life. And the reason he asked this is because he knows that he he needs that leadership. You know, right now, if you were honest... You looked over the paths that you took this week and the thoughts you had this week and maybe the trajectory over the last few years of your life. How much of the decisions that you made and the paths that you charted were really coming out of the warm communion of prayer with the Lord? How much of it was an opportunity to get something? How much of it was laziness to just not be attentive? How much of it was prayerful? It was, it was baked, as it were, in the soul, in communion with the Lord, where your will began to more and more collapse into his will. And you could pray with integrity, Lord, lead me in the everlasting way. You see, David knows he needs that leadership. 
Now, he knows he needs that leadership because he knows that there's more than one way to go. If there was only one way, it'd be pretty easy, right? If there was only one path, it'd it'd be pretty simple. But the fact of the matter is there's more than one way. He notes it here in verse 24. See first, Lord, if there be any grievous way in me, and then lead me in the everlasting way. He notes two ways. It's the key. A few weeks ago, we talked about Hebrew poetry a little bit in here. Do you remember this? Maybe knock the dust off from two weeks ago. Probably too much to ask, isn't it? Well, we'll try to go back there. Parallelism. Hebrew poetry has this thing called parallelism. In the context of verse 24, there's a parallelism here. Parallelism between a grievous way and an everlasting way. Well, here's what I want you to know. He's not repeating like synonymous. He's showing us a different kind of parallelism. He's showing us what's called antithetical parallelism. The opposites. He's saying there's a road that goes this way and there's a road that goes this way. There's a road that's marked by the character quality of grief. And there's a road that goes this way. It's marked by the character quality or description of everlasting. He knows that there are two ways. And here's what's very interesting about the way he describes it. Just notice it. It's not a way out there in the world. You see, this is not saying, hey, friends, if you could get just these five or six things straight in your life and keep doing them, everything's going to turn out great. That's a lie. That's a lie because that doesn't take into account the sovereignty of God. Tell that to Job, for instance. Tell that to the Apostle Paul. Just do these things, everything's going to turn out right. That's a lie. I'm not going to set you up for that. The recognition is as we come prayerful towards the Lord, we want whatever it is that he wants, and we want to root out and discern a way that's not out there in the world, not a method, but a habit, a habit of the heart. You see what he's saying? Root out any grievous way out there, in there. Root out any grievous way in me. These paths aren't out there. You see, actually, he's not talking. I kind of set you up for this. He's not talking about houses or jobs or marriages or children. or He's not talking about any of that. Any of the things that we really care about and think about all the time? That's not what he was talking about. He's talking about the things he cares about. God cares about. What's going on in you? What's the way in you? Is it a grievous way? Or is it an everlasting way? Now, if you think about it, the whole of the testimony of Scripture is that it's a, a book that talks about two ways. Of all the ways out there in the world, there's really only two ways. There's the way of life and there's the way of death. I mean, think of it in Genesis chapter 2. As, as, as God speaks to Adam and he puts in the, the parameter, the prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, hey... Adam, I've given you all the trees in the garden. You can eat of them until you get your feel. They're there for your strength and your nourishment. But there's this one tree. There's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. If you eat it, you're going to die. So do you see the two paths? Eat all the trees I told you it was okay to eat. Things are going to go really well for you. You're going to live. And if you eat of the one tree that I told you not to eat, things are going to go really bad for you. Don't take that path. There's two paths. Right there, Genesis chapter 2. It's actually the same paths. That Jesus will later talk about in Matthew chapter 13 when he says, Broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. See, they're the same paths. 
They're running from cover to cover in the Bible. When, when David says, root out any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, don't you notice in the context of the word grievous and everlasting that there's, a, there's even a time-orientedness to the way in which he's used the language? Our brother Tony last week did a great job of noting the fact that the term here for for grief and the acknowledgement of grief is actually with reference to God. God, I do not want to do anything that would grieve you. And we talked about what grieving the Lord looked like as he referenced the book of Proverbs. But I want you to think not just grievous, but what what actually is behind the word grief? When does the word grief show up? Well, the word grief shows up in our lives when someone has died. When someone has died is when we we grieve. He's saying there's a path in me that is a death-like path. There's a a path in me that unfolds in a deathly way and it ultimately leads to a deathly end. Grievous way. Now, we know this fundamentally. I mean, I had a dear friend pass away a couple of weeks ago, and she had many tears over the last few weeks. Um, grief shouldn't be the way it is. But there's a grief that I've seen on the faces of, of parents who have seen their children go the path of addiction and have left the faith that is almost like death. Because they see, the parents see, This is death-like. This is a death path. And if you stay on this path, this path will tend towards destruction. Broad is the way. There's many different ways to destroy. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's grief. And he understands in the context of this passage that this grief is the nature of the way the flesh and our hearts go when we're not focused on the way that is Christ. There's a way that seems right to a man and its end is the way of death. There's a way that we look at and and we consider it and we say, Lord, that looks like a good way and that way is treacherous. You could probably look back over the course of your life, maybe even this morning if you're honest, and you think, man, I took that road a long time ago and now I don't know how to get off that road. I took the road, but now the road has taken me. And it's like I don't even know how to get off of it. The grief and the strength of the power of sin has now led you down a path where you, all you know to do is to say, Lord, lead me. I can't lead myself. I can't, I'm not listening to anyone else. I need you to come in and break the power. I think that's the prayer of the parent who sees their child leaving the faith and walking off into addiction. Their prayer is that the Lord would in his mercy show them so they'd see something and then in seeing they would turn. You see, that's the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? That's the story of Luke 15, isn't it? That prodigal son who who took off down that road with, with his father's inheritance to go squander it on heaven knows what, to go have a great time down on Broadway in Nashville. And as he was down there, wasted all of his money and everything ran out, he's feeding now pigs and he sees 
the pods of the pigs, and he actually wants the, the pods of the pigs because he's so hungry. The language of the text is he's starving to death. He's been on a death path. And the path is caught up with him. But the most remarkable moment is, is that at beginning in verse 17 where it says, he came to his senses. He came to his senses. He, he like woke up. Now this is our prayer, isn't it? This is our prayer when we're on that path. And maybe some of you have been on that path where you've been going down a little ways. And then all of a sudden, you say, what am I doing? I see where this is heading. And you wake up and you get help and you make the turn. But maybe, like many of us, maybe in this room, you've been on that path. And that voice of the shepherd has continued to come. The warnings have continued to come. And you've stopped up your ears. And you're staying on the path of the death. The prodigal son got to the point where he came to his senses and you know what he began to, to brainstorm about? He began to brainstorm about the father. He began to think about the life he had before. The one that was so restrictive and so difficult and so bad before has now become remarkably attractive. And, and it, we're told that he gets up and he turns and he runs all the way back home. You know, He does essentially what I, I did when I was going the wrong way from Birmingham to Atlanta. He turned around in order to go forward. The same road that he left on was the road he came back on. He saw and he turned. Now if you'll see, the language of 24 is, See if there's any grievous way in me. Let the sight for it, spiritual sight come, and then lead me, turn me in the way everlasting. The shorthand term for what Paul is praying for here is called repentance. It's repentance. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in its shorter catechism, defines repentance this way. It says, repentance is a saving grace. Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin. Notice the language there. A true sense of his sin. Meaning he's not just, feels kind of bad for it. But the grief has begun to settle in. He really... He's really beginning to feel the pains and the reality of it. He knows he's sinned against God. He sees the collateral damage is caused in the lives of others and in his own life. A true sense of his sin. Notice, and an apprehension of the mercy of God doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now there's so many things to say about that definition, but let me say one thing that I think is clarifying because we so often misunderstand this doctrine of repentance, this practice of repentance. He doesn't say, help me feel really, really bad about my sin and then help me resolve to be better. That's not what he said. As if you could just turn from evil and immediately become good. Now that's what we tend to do. We tend to just try to pivot in one fell swoop. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is not that. The definition of repentance, and we see it faithfully throughout the scripture, is turning from our sin unto God. Turning to God. And in turning to God, we gain the grace that we need. We understand the gospel of, who, of what it is Christ has done for us. And then we endeavor after new obedience. We pursue the path of change. We've had an encounter with the gracious God. 
That may be one of the reasons that you're seeing no change in your, your life is that you're just coming up with more rules for how to change and you're not hearing the good news that changes you. Rules never changed you. They can't change you. They don't have the power in and of themselves. doesn't mean they're bad. They're wonderful. There's imperatives all over the scripture. Beautiful imperatives that we should love. They're the way of life, directing us in the way of life. But you need a changed heart to follow those imperatives. You can't follow those imperatives with the stony and broken and wicked heart that's there walking in the grievous way. You've got to turn from sin unto God. Now, here's the, here's the dilemma. When David says, lead me into the everlasting way, he's clearly speaking of a leading of God. He's wanting God to come and enter into his world. If we enter into God's world, well, that's, well, that's actually kind of the the greatest nightmare imaginable. I mean, if you just think about it, let me put it in another context. You know when you got found out as a kid, children, you'll remember this, you'll know this. You know, you did that thing you shouldn't have done. Parents found out. You know they found out. You know you're going to have to face them. And the one thing you don't want to do is face them. Right? It's so humbling it's so humiliating to be in front of them. And then the discipline's going to come, and you, you can't, you're fearful of it. And so what do you do? You, you hide. You try to skirt getting around them in some way. Listen, the same is true here. If there's a grievous way inside of David, is he really going to go to the one whom he really offended? Who is going to be displeased and who has the power to judge him? But why, how in the world is he ever going to turn to God. How, how do you get the confidence to say, Lord, there's grievous ways in me, but lead me in the way everlasting. You see all this stuff in me. How can we be in a relationship with God where we're not afraid for him to see everything that's there as he sees it and to know that he will change us by it and lead us in the way everlasting? Well, the same way that you'd ever be able to go to a parent would be an acknowledgement that though you have come to a place where you have gone the wrong way, you're coming to a parent who loves you, who forgives you, and who will lead you on that everlasting way. Only until that happens. Well, the question for us is how do we have that relationship with God? How, how is it that we could actually live with that kind of freedom with the Lord? And when you look at the pages of Scripture, I think you see that that is the role of our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at this passage, lead me in the everlasting way, there's no way we can be led until somebody goes ahead of us. You know, that's a part of leadership. A good leader doesn't point, hey, go that way. A good leader says, follow me. And what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he came to earth is he didn't point and say, go obey all the laws. Get your act together. He says, I know you too well. That's never going to happen. Why don't you come follow me? I'll take the lead. You see, when you lead, you go before the other. You walk ahead of them. 
And what Jesus did is he walked ahead of us. And you know where he went? He went to judgment day. He's already gone there. See, judgment day has already happened. It happened when Christ was on the cross. The judgment, your judgment, the day that is coming, the great judgment day, your particular judgment has already happened. He's gone before you. He's led to the judgment day. And how did he do it? When he was there on the cross, he received judgment day for you. All of the sins, all of the offenses against the Lord were paid in full by Jesus. He went ahead of you. He led you. And received everything that you were supposed to receive on that day. And in doing that, what actually happened is he opened up an everlasting way. He right now stands at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we're told that he lives to make intercession for us. That he is our Savior, the only mediator between God and man. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is that way. You see what Jesus has done? He went before us, leading us on the way. And in his leadership, he made the way so that as he is our leader, he can become for us the way. That's what he is. In John 14, 6, he can say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. You see, this is where repentance really gets its punch. Is when we begin to realize in the grief and the awareness of our sin, we turn unto God and that God doesn't smite us or judge us. That God has loved us so much that he's gone before us in judgment. And he's received our judgment. And he has made the way and he has now become the way. It's in that moment you begin to understand what Romans 2 was all about. When Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he said, listen, you don't need to be presuming upon God. Don't you know that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You know how we often change and how we often try to get others to change? We try to shame them. You know, think about it. How does the church so often get volunteers, right? You know, we, we bring a little baby up front. We say, the nursery really needs you. And you're not signed up to help in the nursery. And shame on you. You should rectify that today. Change your behavior. Change the way you do things. A lot of times in our own, in our own families growing up, change was forced in scary and punitive ways. And there's a time. There's a time for those firm boundaries. But those firm boundaries in and of themselves can never get to the heart that wants to do the right thing. It's only by grace knowing that someone has already removed the pain. Where we can now enjoy Change. That's what makes the gospel a fundamentally different reality. It doesn't shame you into changing. It doesn't beat you or berate you into changing. It gladdens you into change. You're so loved. You're so accepted. And there's no way you could be compromised in Christ that you couldn't help but change. 
by the virtue of love. The reason we don't do what it is that God has called us to do is because we don't believe that we are loved in the way that we are loved. We have not received the love at such a transformative level that we look at the commands and say, it is my delight to do the commands of my God. I live for the smile of my Father who smiles on me. Do you see how freeing that is? That is leadership in the everlasting way. That is the experience of the renewal that comes when we know that the way is sure, the leader has conquered, and the path is open, and heaven has been won for us by our Savior. What a leader. What a way. Friends, I hope this morning as we come to the end of this series that you're learning our prayer for this new year is that the Lord would get everything out of us that he could possibly get out of us that's grievous. And that the Lord would so consume us through the power of his Holy Spirit and the joy of the gospel that we would set our face to every single one of his commands and we'd skip with joy into 2019 saying yes to what he's called us to. You see, as that becomes the place of renewal, you're beginning to become a Christian. The happiest person on the earth. The most loved person on the earth. The most accepted person on the earth. And you want everyone else to know that joy by watching your life and by through you seeing the leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, come and lead us in this. Come this year in a special way and lead us in this. Show us that we have sought out many devices and we have forsook the everlasting way. Help us to know in our failures that we have recourse of a God who loves us and who cares for us and who will in no wise cast us out. Uh, Lord, we need leadership. Right now in this room, there are decisions and dilemmas in the lives of every single one of us. And we may be trying to perfect. We may be being passive. Make us prayerful. Make us so prayerful that when we see our grievous ways, we turn right unto you. And in turning unto you, we begin to love what you command. Oh, Father, let that be our song in 2019. And today... Let's go a little further down the everlasting way. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.